Oh, my gosh. Um, I get, uh, you probably all do, you get these humor things through the email every once in a while. And every once in a while, they're so good that uh, I just got to share. And especially when I can actually tie it into the message, it's even better. It's not just arbitrary things. But um, this particular one, apparently an elementary school teacher was trying to... um, get her students familiar with just, you know, colloquial proverbs, things that we say all the time, kind of that have become idiomatic expressions. And so what she did as a, as a test for the class, I guess, is that she gave them a sheet of paper with the first half of a lot of well-known proverbs, and they were supposed to fill in the back half. All right? And these are first graders, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> Here's the first one. Strike while the, while the bug is close. It's always darkest before daylight savings time. You can lead a horse to water, but how? (laughs) Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. You can't teach an old dog new math. (laughs) The pen is mightier than the pigs. An idle mind is the best way to relax. A penny saved is not much. <laughs> Two's company, three's the musketeers. I love this one. Don't put off till tomorrow what you put on to go to bed. There are none so blind as Stevie Wonder. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. If at first you don't succeed, get new batteries. You get out of something only what you see in the picture on the box. A bird in the hand is going to poop on you. And the last one, better late than pregnant. Can you say that in church? I don't know. (laughs) First grader. They grow up so fast, don't they? Gosh. You know, what these kids are doing is they're filling in the blanks here. They're filling in the missing information with their own knowledge, their level of knowledge, with their own imagination, and with their experience. And, you know, left to their own devices, what else can they do? But here's the thing. We do the same thing. When we're reading a text, whether it's a current text or whether it's an ancient text, but especially when it's an ancient text, we do exactly the same thing. The missing pieces, the things we don't understand, the the bits that really aren't there that are left implied, what are we going to do? We're going to fill them in with our own knowledge, our own understanding, our imagination. You know, we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to interpret and we're going to fill in those missing pieces with our experience and with our imagination. It's all we can do if we don't take the time to actually investigate, to dig in, to understand what the language is about and what the historical and cultural context is all about. And so with ancient texts, like we're going to be exactly like those first graders. If we don't know what the words meant, we're just going to fill in the blanks. You know, if you've been here at all for any length of time, you know that this is a, this is an old saw of mine. I'm I'm always keeping coming back to this, but it's absolutely necessary for us because These texts that we hold sacred, that we are reading, that we are trying to order our lives around, 
We think we know what they say because they're translated into our language, but we're doing the same thing that these kids are doing. We're filling in the blanks with things that we understand instead of letting the text really speak to us and take us someplace that we haven't gone before, which is really what we want to do, to be able to do. You know? um, a, a case in point, the, probably the biggest misunderstanding and the most critical misunderstanding that we have of the New Testament is the kingdom of heaven itself. And I know we've gone over this before. The kingdom of heaven, we think of, since it, it's got the word in the name, we think of it as the heaven of the next life. But what Jesus is talking about is something completely different. And he spent arguably his entire ministry defining the kingdom of heaven because his first hearers had a completely wrong idea about kingdom. They thought that it was temporal, it was here and it was now, but that it was political and it was military and it was going to be a military regime that would kick out the Romans and then reestablish sovereignty in Judea. We think it's this heavenly thing of the next life. And Jesus is saying, no, it's neither. It is here and now, but what it is is a quality of life. The best translation would be the reign of the king. It's a quality of life that we have when we are completely involved in the moment, when we are completely present, when we are completely free of all the hurts, all the trauma, all that false self self stuff that Jim was talking about. When we're finally free of that and we're able to be right here, right now, exactly who we are, present and able to choose for the greater good of everyone who is going to be involved in that choice, That's what Jesus calls kingdom. And he spends so much time trying to understand. But here's the problem. Just understanding that concept. I mean, I've been saying it for 15 years. And I watch heads go up and down in agreement. But in the next sentence, in the next paragraph, we're right back to the old understanding, the cultural understanding, the understanding that we grew up with. Because cognitive understanding, intellectually understanding, is just the first step. It's kind of just the ticket in the door. There's so much more that has to happen in order for us to be able to sift through all of the ramifications of such a radical change in perspective that Jesus is trying to teach us, to let it really work on us, to become completely assimilated, and then to let it change our worldview. Because if what Jesus is teaching is primarily about here and now and not about there and then, How does that change everything? Radically so, fundamentally so. But we keep operating as if reward is later and this is something separate from and it becomes this legal contractual thing instead of an immersion in a moment right here and right now and a very different thing than we are imagining. So this most important shift that Jesus is trying to get us to take is from there then to here now. That the kingdom is now. The kingdom is today. And the kingdom is always today. And it's never anything else. It's never any when else. It can't be. Because today is all we have. There's only today. There's always only today. Past and future are just electrical firings in our brains. They don't really exist. So if we're going to meet God... If we're going to have this kingdom experience, it's got to be today. It's got to be right now. I want to read you um, from Luke. This will be chapter 4, starting at verse 16, and it's in your uh, inserts, and I'm sure Brandon has got it up on the screen. He's so amazing. This is Jesus immediately after he goes through the temptation in the wilderness. 
the Spirit sends him out into the wilderness. The, the, the symbolic time is 40 days and 40 nights, but it was a long time. There's 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus' life. We don't know how long that he was in the wilderness working on these issues, purging all of his human obsessions and compulsions and getting to this place of what he calls kingdom. But as soon as he comes back, he goes back to the Galilee, to his home province, and he ends up in Nazareth, his hometown. And he's about to speak in front of the synagogue as it was customary for him to do. So this is something that he did before, but now he's coming back and he's creating this huge stir because the boy that left is not the man that returned, apparently, because everybody's amazed. And to just go a little bit into an ancient Jewish synagogue service, as much as we can reconstruct, I think is is so instructive because then it, it shows us how accurate the scriptures really are. An ancient synagogue service for the Jews is more like a Bible study would be today. There were three important players, and it was the reader, the interpreter, and then the teacher. And the reader would read the scriptures in Aramaic. And they were, there was a, a liturgy to ancient Jewish services. And so they would read the entire Torah in a three-year cycle. Currently, it's just a one-year cycle. They've condensed it, but it was a three-year cycle. And they would read on Mondays and Thursdays and on Saturdays, on the Sabbath, of course. And on the Sabbath services, the reader would read first, and there were two readings. There were two prayers and then two readings, and then the teacher would teach. And the two readings, the first reading came from the Torah, and the second reading came from either the prophets or the writings. They divided their Bible into three sections. The Torah, the first five books, all the sayings of the prophets, and then the writings, that was all the poetry books, like Proverbs and Psalms and so on and so forth. And so they would read from the, from the Torah, and then they would read from the writings and the prophets. There is a board of elders in each synagogue, ten elders. They would sit in the front row, And then all the congregation would sit behind with the men on one side and the women on the other behind a lattice, kind of a wall or divider that divided right down the middle of the room. And so the women were behind the lattice, sorry ladies, and uh, the men were on the other side. And the chief of the elders would invite readers to read. Okay, And so the reader would read and always standing up. In fact, it was against the law to sit down or even to lean. I find that kind of interesting. You couldn't lean while you were reading. You had to stand up straight. But the teachers sat when they would teach. And so you're going to notice in the scripture as we read it, Jesus stands to read, and then he sits back down again before he begins to teach. And there was an attendant or a, a clerk, if you will, of the synagogue. He was called the Hassan. And the Hassan would be the one who would go and get the, the books from a painted wooden ark and bring it. And, of course, these are books the way we think of books. They're scrolls. And so they're animal skins that are stitched end to end and attached to two ornate rollers on either side. And, of course, you read from right to left. So you would roll off the left and roll on to the right to get to where you wanted to go. And ancient Hebrew is not like any language that we have today. There were no vowels, so it's just a string of consonants. There's no spacing, no parsing between words or sentences. There's no punctuation. There's no chapter headers. There's no verse numbers. Chapter and verses weren't going to come for 1,500 years after Jesus' time before their first, first chapter and verse headers. So imagine just columns of consonants, and you've got to roll this thing to get to the spot. And where Jesus is reading from is Isaiah 61. That's a lot of rolling. And all these columns of just dense characters, just consonants, he needed to know what he was doing. 
You couldn't casually just go up and read. If you were a reader, it's because you were schooled and you knew these scriptures and can get where you needed to go. So with that background, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I'm sure that's not all he said. That was just the beginning line that is preserved in the New Testament for us. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He reads from Isaiah. And what he's basically doing is he's giving us his mission statement. He's giving us everything that he is going to be about for the rest of his earthly life, the rest of his ministry. He's giving us the nut, the kernel, the important part of it. And it's addressed to the poor. And we have to understand about the poor. Because when we think of poor, we think of the economically poor. We think of someone who doesn't have the money that they should have. Or maybe we'll spiritualize it and we'll think of the spiritually poor, someone who doesn't have the insight, doesn't have the whatever it takes to be able to really connect with God's presence. But poverty and to be poor in first century Mediterranean culture meant much more than that. It was really expansive. Their idea of shalom, which we would translate as peace, we think of just as the absence of conflict, but to them, it was the greatest amount of health and wealth and relationship and connection and freedom that was possible. And so to be poor was the obverse of that, the negative of that. If you were disadvantaged in any way, if you were limited in any way, you were poor. Not just because you were financially disadvantaged, but if you were born blind, if you were deaf, if you were sick, certainly if you had leprosy. If you just had a lower status, and didn't, weren't able to trade and, and be part of the community as others were. All of this was considered poor. If you were oppressed in any way, if you were in debt in any way, all of these things that took you off the beam, missing the mark of shalom, was being poor. And so Jesus then expands on this list. Right now he's got you know, making the blind see and releasing the captives. But take a look at Luke 7. This little section is where John the Baptist, who's in prison, is getting frustrated, impatient with Jesus, wondering if he's really the one that they were expecting or if they should look for someone else because Jesus isn't meeting his expectations. John was probably an Essene and was looking for the Messiah who was going to come and establish the kingdom as they understood it. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question. And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And that last line is a little weird for us in English. But the word offend there means to hit against something, a blockage, or to stumble over something. And so offense is not really a good translation for us to try to understand what Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about is, blessed is the person, happy are you, congratulations, if you aren't stumbled by unmet expectations about me. If you think I was going to do this and I'm not doing that particular thing, so now you're just going to turn the whole thing off, you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're going to start looking for someone else, and you're going to miss what is really here. Happy are you if that doesn't happen. If you're able to see through your expectations, what you think is supposed to happen, who I'm supposed to be, and see what's really here. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now he's added to his list. All of these people are poor. All of them need the gospel. All of them need the good news. What news? That today the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. You don't have to wait anymore. You can start right now today. It really always was today. But Jesus is here to proclaim it. Jesus is here to show us what this looks like in human form. We are all the poor. All of us have something that takes us down from perfect shalom. Apologies to anyone who has perfect shalom in here. You know, I always remember that line from the movie, what do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? Keep it to yourself. It's today, it's now, or it's never. It's always about today. There's a, a, a little bit I want to read to you from a Lutheran pastor. And he, I think he just nails it. He says, today is an important word for Luke. It occurs 12 times in Luke and only nine times in the other three Gospels combined. It occurs in such familiar passages as, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Today you will be with me in paradise. And twice in the Zacchaeus story, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. And today salvation has come to this house. And in our text, this one right here, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For Luke, today is a moment of radical change. The shepherds come and see the Savior born in Bethlehem. They return rejoicing and praising God. They had been changed today. After Jesus' visit with Zacchaeus, he is changed. He says, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We can suppose that the eternal life of the thief on the cross was radically changed by Jesus' words as well. He has promised eternity in paradise. In our gospel here, this lesson, there is a change in the people who heard Jesus. At first, they're proud of their hometown boy. They boast to one another about knowing his parents. But the more Jesus talked about God's grace, even for non-Jews, another reaction came forth from the people. And Luke tells us all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They tried to kill Jesus by throwing him over a cliff. Today is a time of change brought about through an encounter with Jesus. The change may involve attitude, rejoicing and praising God, or wanting to kill Jesus. The change may involve financial priorities, giving rather than getting. The change may involve finding comfort and hope in the midst of despair and death. However, we often avoid the changes of today. For Jesus' listeners and for us, the word today is terrifying. On one hand, Jesus is not who they expected. 
Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? If today is a day of God's great salvation, what's this Jesus doing here telling it to us? If today is the great day, where are all the miracles? If today is such an extraordinary day, why don't I see some extraordinary things happening? Jesus the boy raised in that town by Mary and Joseph simply spoke to the people. No flashing lights, no voices from heaven. Jesus sang a few words in the synagogue. Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus coming in a few words. Yesterday can look glorious, tomorrow can look glamorous, but today is so ordinary. Ain't that the truth? So many of us get into a routine, a rut. Today is just another day. Was Jesus just another hometown boy? Were his words just another teacher's words? The great saving event of God comes in a common, ordinary way. Sometimes we miss, sometimes we may even miss them. Today is an extraordinary day. God is with you today. Today is a terrifying word because it calls you into action now. I don't know what to do, you might complain. I don't want to make a decision now, you rationalize. The call of today shakes you out of your complacency. Just as the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus, so that same Spirit is upon each of you. You will make some wrong decisions. God promises to forgive those. And who knows how the Spirit will use your mistakes? You will make some right decisions, and you know that the Spirit will use those. You will become a better person, a better believer, and this world will be a better place for some people. We are to be radical community on this earth. Jesus is saying that the impossible is happening today. The good news is you can start now. You can be part of those miracles today. The bad news is you'll never finish. If you answer the call to start, it's a lifetime commitment. There will be great, wonderful moments along the way, but there will always be more that needs to be done. What he's telling us is that kingdom, Jesus' entire mission, shalom, Everything that we think about in the New Testament is always today. It's never anyone else. It can't be anyone else because no other when exists. Today is all we ever have. So what is actually happening today? What is Jesus talking about? Well, today, the blind see. The deaf hear. The lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. The captives are free. The poor, all of these people are being brought into shalom. So the question becomes, is Jesus talking here, is the New Testament telling us here that these things are literal, or are they spiritual, or are they metaphorical, or are they all these at the same time? And if so, is there one priority over the other? Are we supposed to understand these as physical healings, as spiritual healings, what's going on and how do we understand this? Because we can obviously look at the blind seeing as finally being able to look at new beliefs, new concepts in a way that you weren't able to do before. Same thing with the deaf being able to hear, to un be unable to hear new paradigms or new ways of thought, unable to be able to, to just see Jesus for what he is, has to do with hearing and seeing. To be paralyzed by fear into inaction. To not be able to take a next step. To be imprisoned by dysfunctional relationships and families and all the things that traumatize us and then oppress us and put us under 
into literal prisons for our mind and for our emotions. Well, of course, as in most things, it's not an either-or. To look at Jesus' healings as spiritual is not to say that they weren't physical as well, that the text is not literal. But for us right here, right now, what's going to be most relevant and what we're going to be able to use right now is going to be those spiritual understandings of Jesus' healing. What is it that is keeping us from being able to be fully free, fully immersed, to abandon ourselves into this moment, to be vulnerable and open and to risk getting hurt time after time after time. So for us, the spiritual is going to be more immediate, more present, unless you're actually physically blind or something, and then you're going to need that one as well. But those physical healings remain elusive for us, in our culture at least. But are they any more difficult to perform than the emotional healings, the psychological healings, the spiritual healings. See, I don't know that we can make that leap. Take a look at what Jesus does and says here at Mark Mark 2, starting at verse 3. This is the story of the paralytic, right? Jesus is teaching in a home and it's so packed out that this group of friends can't get their paralyzed friend in to see Jesus, so they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. That's the story. And so they came, these friends came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Talk about a non sequitur. Where'd that come from? Son, your sins are forgiven. But they brought him to be healed because he can't walk. Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Now that's a strange saying. Which is easier to say? What is Jesus really saying here? He's basically asking them to ask the question, is the paralyzed man's ability to rise above his affliction, to find the kind of close allies, friends, relationships, community, any less miraculous than getting up, picking up his pallet and walking? See, for this man to have been brought by four friends in the way that they did, with the determination that they had, the obvious love that they had for this man, means this man was in tight relationship with them. He was connected. He was close. He was not dysfunctional in his relationships. Even though he was paralyzed, he was able to rise above that. Jesus is recognizing that here. He doesn't say, I forgive you. Notice that. He is recognizing that his sins are forgiven in the sense that an Aramaic speaker would understand that to mean. To be forgiven is to be set free. It's the same word. Liberation and forgiveness is the same word in Aramaic. Jesus is saying, you are set free from all your dysfunction, from the poverty generalized. 
You are in shalom. Your sins are forgiven. Is that any less miraculous than picking up your pallet and walking? We work with addicts and alcoholics all the time, and I'm telling you, we see these miracles. And they are miracles. With some of the backgrounds, with some of the childhood, with some of the families that some of these addicts and alcoholics are coming from, for them to even be sitting up straight in a chair and talking to you is a miracle. And where they can go from there is miraculous. To move through the hurts and the trauma and the dysfunction and to get free again? See, we are so fixated on the the, the form of something, you know, the, the, the physical healings. And yes, they are more supernatural, I suppose, in terms of the physical universe. But the interior life, this is something that Jesus doesn't miss. And he's calling us not to miss it either. To be able to move from this place of dysfunction and to another place of shalom is a miracle. And it happens so rarely. And that tells us why it is such a miracle and so difficult to do. Jesus says that the way to life is is narrow and the gate is constricted. And of course, we're thinking heaven and hell again. But he's always today. Remember, always today. Everything he says is about today. He's talking about this very phenomenon of people being able to move through and get to this other side. It's difficult. How many people do you know that you would say are completely balanced and completely free to be present, to be vulnerable, to be open? It's probably kind of a short list. It doesn't happen that often that you meet people like that. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Why so few? Why is the way narrow and the gate constricted? And I think it's because healing is not an event. It's a process. Jesus is recorded in his healings, at least the physical ones or the way that we take them literally. They look like an event, you know? You can see, you can hear, pick up your palate and walk. And yet there are other times when he heals in stages, remember? Remember? There was a man he, who uh, he put the mud on the, on the eyes and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And there's another one where he had to do it twice because the first time it was all blurry and he said, I see men, but they're walking around like trees. You know? and then he had, so sometimes there was a process to it and sometimes it looks like an event. But really what's going on here is that there is a process that Jesus calls the way that will get us to kingdom. If he healed physically as an event, this way of coming into kingdom, this way of coming into complete freedom that allows us to be present to our God is a process. And it takes a lot of work and it takes some time. And there really is no other way to go about doing it. It's just to come to kingdom is to be healed of poverty, to take us into shalom. It's a way of deconstructing this false self this false image, this identification we have of ourselves with things that are not deep enough to be eternal and connected with God. And whether we have a positive image of ourselves or a negative image, it doesn't matter. If we are identified with it, then it is the block. It's the opaque wall that is keeping us from being able to see what is really true. I want to read to you a little bit from Thomas Merton, see if we can get this idea of the false self across. Merton says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the person that I want myself to be, 
but who cannot exist because God, because truth and light, knows nothing about him. And to be unknown to God is altogether too much privacy. Don't you love that line? My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. It's all expectation. It's all in our heads. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish most about ourselves, the ones we are born and raised with. And for most people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to maintaining and expanding this false self, this shadow, is what is called a life of sin. The assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life around which everything else in the universe is ordered. Thus I use up my life in the desire for pleasures and thirst for experiences, for power, honor, knowledge, feeling loved. In order to clothe this false self and construct its nothingness, into something objectively real. And I wind experiences around myself and cover myself with pleasures and glory like bandages in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world, as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface. I love that image. To be a saint means to be my true self. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I truly am and of discovering my true self, my essence or core. Richard Rohr jumps in, your egoic false self is who you think you are, but your thinking does not make it true. Your false self is a social and mental construct to get you started on your life journey. It's a set of agreements between you and your parents, your family, your school chums, your partner or spouse, your culture and your religion. It's your container. It is largely defined in distinction from others, precisely as your separate and unique self. It is probably necessary to get started in life, but it becomes problematic when you stop there and spend the rest of your life promoting and protecting it. I hope you're starting to get an idea of what this false self is. It's everything that you identify with, your roles, your accomplishments, your attributes, all those things. But if we're only fixated on that, then we're never going to be able to see the self that is deeper than that, that resides underneath all that. Because anything that can be taken from you is not who you really are. And eventually all those things will disappear, at least at the moment of death, but most of them long before that, as life moves forward. Who are we really? Jesus' way is a way of discovering the answer to that question. Not in isolation, but in connection with Father. When we start to know who Father is, only then can we start to know who we are. When we start to know something about this objective reality, this first cause, this, this ground of all being that we call God, then we will start to know. Jesus' way is the process of becoming conscious of our true self. And it's a process. It's the way, capital W. And it's the only way to the Father. And it's a lot of work. It takes some time. And it starts today. Always today. You see that, that quote from Mary Shelley? 
The beginning is always today. It's always today. Maybe it never finishes. Maybe the stone is never smooth, at least in this life. Except in individual kingdom moments. There can be moments that are just perfect. Because you allow them to be enough. And for no other reason. You finally just say, this moment is enough. I don't need to be anywhere else. I don't need to be doing anything else. I don't need to be with anyone else. This is enough. And that's a perfect moment. And that is a taste of kingdom, of heaven, of God's presence. So the question you should be asking, I guess, is how? How do we get here? How do we do this? The process has to start with the physical, the clinical, If there are any organic problems, mental defects, we've got to take care of those first. It's the same thing that we do with our our clients here. Start there. Start with the clinical. Start with that. And then move into the emotional. Move into the psychological. Move into the mental and the spiritual. That's a progression that we need to start with. Psychodynamics is going to take a look at the past and try to clean up the past, you know, Cognitive behavioral therapy is going to look at the present, try to clean up the present. Contemplative prayer is really kind of doing both at the same time. You know, there's all these different ways that we can go about moving through this process. But one thing I wanted to call your attention to this morning is the 12 steps as a beautiful expression of Jesus' way in very concrete terms and forms. If you think about it, this journey of ours today is not going to start Until there's enough pain, there's enough motivation to change, which is usually pain, right? That our desire for change becomes greater than our fear of change. Fear of the risk of taking a step in a new direction. We have to get to the point where we finally admit that we are powerless. We can't do this on our own. And we have to open ourselves up vulnerably and become interdependent with people around us And of course, with God's presence and spirit as well. Nothing happens until that threshold is reached. The first three steps are an expression of what that looks like. You don't take these three discrete steps necessarily, but the process is that, that you finally avail yourself to a power that is greater than yourselves. And then I want you to take a look at steps four through seven, and I put them in the handout so that we can kind of read and kind of see what's going on, because I think each one of these is tied to what Jesus' mission is all about. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I can't think of a better way to actually practice the blind seeing. Right? From a spiritual point of view. To make a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. To question all of our belief systems to question the things that we aren't even aware of that are deep down subconscious beliefs, all the stuff from our traumatic past, all the things that drive us into obsessive compulsive behavior, to be able to take a look at those, to turn that searchlight ruthlessly inward and to see what are the character defects, what is really going on there, to actually see what's in operation and what is driving the choices that you make That's opening your eyes. That step is literally causing the blind to see. The fifth step, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. 
It's not enough to keep this in your head. You actually have to physically do something. You have to go to the doorstep of another person and tell them these things. The lame are walking here. We are no longer paralyzed by fear. We are no longer so fearful of what others are going to think of us or being completely ostracized, excommunicated, that people will run screaming from the room because of the things that we have been hiding all our lives, to tell them, to walk over and tell them and see what's actually going on, to become accountable to another human being because you've actually opened up to them. When the lepers were cleansed, it wasn't just cleaning a skin disease, and it didn't have to be Hansen's, it could be anything. A leper was forced out of community. They had to stay outside the city gates. They had to call to people who were coming within shouting distance that they were unclean and people would avoid them. To cleanse a leper meant to bring them back into community. This fifth step of actually going to the doorstep of another is to move back into community, to move back into accountability, to reconnect with the human race at a level that we hadn't been practicing before. A concrete thing that we do the sixth step, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. To hear completely and fully, to assimilate completely and fully what this good news is about is what Jesus is talking about. It's like the deaf finally hearing, to be able to hear something and let it go all the way down and to connect with us in such a way that we understand this good news and we are now entirely ready for change all filled up to the top, ready to move into the seventh step, which is to humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Here the dead are raised. Here the captives are free. Here transformation actually takes place in this process. It's a process that we take. But here are discrete steps that we can actually do. We need those steps. If it's not going to be the 12 steps for you, then it will have these elements in whatever you do do or else you're not doing it. What is it that you are doing that takes you through the steps of the blind hearing, your blindness being alleviated, your deafness, your lameness, your paralysis, all of these things that we have in our lives that are keeping us from where Jesus would take us, these are the things that are being relieved. And then and only then can we move on to actually practice good relationship to mend the relationships of the past, to keep cherishing the current relationships and the relationships of the future. This is what the way is all about. This is what kingdom is all about. Jesus' mission is to set the captives free by bringing this good news to the poor that today we are able to start this journey. We are the poor, the captives and the repressed. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is talking about us and to us in these passages. We have to recognize that this. To admit that we are Jesus' mission. It's not someone else out there who needs to be healed. It's me. That his way is the only way to the Father. This is the beginning that we can do today. And to accept this way, to accept that this way is not passive. It's not going to be an, an event. It's not going to be a prayer answered instantly. But it's going to take effort. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take us continuing on a path with the willingness to be disturbed by what we find. 
to stay in that place of disturbance as long as it takes to move through, those are the first tenuous first steps that we take along Jesus' way. We can't assume that we understand a familiar Jesus because that's not going to take us where we need to go. If Jesus isn't rocking your world, then you're like a first grader filling in the blanks of those Proverbs, making them say what you understand them to say, making them say what you already think you know, rather than being rocked by what Jesus is really trying to tell us. And if this way, this kingdom, this shalom, isn't always today for you if it's being deferred in any way out, either to the afterlife or to next week, then you've lost your way. Because it's always here. It's always now. It's always today. And that is the good news. It's always today. And it's always kingdom if we choose kingdom for our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. It is amazing and frustrating the way that you've set this up. Help us with our impatience. Help us with wanting something passively to come from outside in and change us. Help us to steel ourselves to the reality that you're showing us here that there's something we have to do and do consistently to grow the awareness, to grow the presence that will help us to choose you in every moment, to choose each other and you in each other in every moment. That is the way that Jesus is showing us. Help us to see that more clearly. Help us to sit with that and really assimilate it. Let it take us where we need to go. Thank you for always being present at every step of our journey, no matter how difficult it is or however far you may feel from us. Thank you for always being there. Help us more and more to realize that basic fact that we're never alone. Thank you for loving us and empowering us, Lord. And never let us forget that we can only love or do any of this because you loved us first. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.